This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Hanem. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we have a great show today. You know, we're on the precipice of some major uh, developments just uh, nationally and globally. Obviously, you know, uh, ex-president Trump is going to be scheduled to be in Manhattan tomorrow. He's going to face an indictment. We'll see what happens with that. 32 people were killed in tornadoes in the Midwest. And of course, our show today, we're going to be focusing on a number of issues related to the ongoing crisis in Palestine. You know, the ongoing apartheid and uh, oppressive apartheid regime of Israel continues to unfold. And we're going to talk about how the uh, Israeli cabinet uh, has approved Ben Gavir's national Guard plan. This is an extraordinary plan, basically giving Ben Gavir uh, a militia to to kind of crack down and terrorize uh, Palestinian civilians even more. So this is going to be a militia group. It's going to it's an extraordinary development in the ongoing saga of the uh, creation of this uh, terrorist attack on Palestinians. We're going to continue to follow the the kind of ignoring of the New York Times and all the mainstream media of what's happening with the apartheid practices and what's really happening. Um, in fact, the New York Times had a had a op-ed that said the fight for Israel's democracy continues, completely ignoring Jamal the the reality of on the ground of occupation, oppression, and apartheid. But before we get to that, we're going to be watching an interview you did with Dr. Sai. Englert. He's a lecturer in political economy of the Middle East at Leiden University in the Netherlands. He wrote an article in the Middle East Eye called Israeli Crisis. This is not about democracy. It's about liberal Zionist supremacy. It's an incredible interview, Jamal, and uh, we'll have a lot to say about it on the other end. That's right. Uh, And uh, basically, uh, Dr. Sai Englert explains why democracy has never existed in Israel and what the current uproar really is all about. Let's watch Dr. Sai Englert. Israel has always boasted it is the only democracy in the Middle East. This is repeatedly invoked by the United States to justify its unqualified support and defense of it. With Netanyahu's ultra-right coalition dismantling Israel's judicial system and assigning parts to parliament's oversight. Throngs of Israelis trailing blue and white flags have poured into the streets in vehement support against this threat to Israel's so-called democratic identity. Palestinians' grievances, however, are not included in these protests, although Palestinians are excluded from every aspect of Israeli-style democracy because Israel, democracy, because in Israel, democracy is a privilege only enjoyed by its Jewish citizens. Joining us on Arab Talk this week is Dr. Sai Engler. His article in the Middle East Eye, Israeli Crisis, This is Not About Democracy, It's About Liberal Zionist Supremacy, explains why democracy has never existed in Israel and what the current uproar really involves. He is a lecturer in political economy of the Middle East at Leiden University in the Netherlands. He is also the author of the book Settler Colonialism, an Introduction. Sai Englert, uh, welcome to Arab Talk. Thank you so much for having me. Set the stage for us. What are the key issues that people are protesting against in Israel right now? What is at stake for them? So... I, I think there's maybe two levels uh, of answer to that question. I think on the one hand, sort of immediately on the face of it, there is the question of the election, the sixth election now, I think, in, in the, the space of two years. So real kind of ongoing political uh, instability, at least, if not crisis inside of Israel. And so the election of a new government led by uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, who is now the longest serving Israeli prime minister and was drawn around himself and his Likud party, which is sort of historically the party of the Israeli right, a coalition of uh, the most right wing parties in the Israeli parliament, parties that are associated with 
both the religious and the settler uh, movement, not an important amount of them who identify with the politics of Kahane, who was the kind of the, the father of uh, uh, Israeli, of, of modern Israeli religious far-right uh, movements or, or, or fascism. And uh, since that coalition has come into power, one of the kind of key points that is that it has identified as its sort of target is the transformation of the Israeli judicial system and particularly of the high court. And the high court is seen as a sort of a hyper-liberal body uh, by these uh, uh, by this coalition. We might want to talk about how liberal it really is, uh, but it is a body that can that is able to overrule uh, government decisions. And in fact, as soon as the coalition came into power, the high court sanctioned one of the key figures in the coalition, the leader of the Shas party. Uh, Derry, who's a, a, a kind of a, a long-standing and key figure in Israeli politics, and, and ruled that it was unconstitutional to have him as part of the government because of his previous um, uh, findings against him for fraud and bribery and, and, and things like that. And so the government is moving to reform the high court in a way that would effectively give not only parliament, but really the ruling coalition within the parliament and so the government, the ability both to overrule decisions made by the high court and uh, to appoint, and crucially, this is really one of the issues that's been sort of the, the most rejected, is to decide, effectively decide, so to strengthen its hand on the judicial committee that oversees the high court, and so to basically be able uh, able to appoint the, the the judges on the high court, so effectively make it much more aligned with the kind of the, the ruling coalition of the day. And this has been really the kind of the key the key question. There's lots of other ways in which the government is passing laws, most notably last week, a law that would effectively stop the high court of impeaching Netanyahu. Um, or, well, impeach a, a prime minister, but in this case, Netanyahu. And so it's really around a set of kind of legal changes uh, that the protesters see as a kind of a fundamental attack on the checks and balances of the Israeli state and the division of power. So when, think, we, talk, when we talk about uh, uh, progressive in Israel, it is something very different than what we might normally think. Uh, in, in what way? Yes, uh, absolutely. And, and here I think is maybe the second level I was talking about is that I think the real struggle is much more about who controls the state and how rather than the exact kind of institutional formulation in which this takes place. How is a judge chosen, etc. And, and, and that links to your question, which is to say that uh, when people talk about the progressive camp, the liberal camp, the Israeli left, they're talking at this point really about a very broad coalition of different political forces that is basically everybody except Netanyahu. And so in the last uh, government before that of Netanyahu, you had a coalition that stretched all the way from sections of the settler movement, passing through the political center with people like Benny Gantz, who's today kind of one of the leading figures of the kind of opposition, who is a former chief of staff of the Israeli army, who oversaw the 2014 massacre of Gaza, who boasted of it as his kind of main selling point when he stood for election, who has previously served with Netanyahu in government. And then it also includes the Labour Party, union, social movements, etc. So in no way is that helpfully understood, I think, as progressive or certainly not left-wing. And even within the Israeli left, I think it's often mistaken as something that we could compare to, let's say, the left in Europe or perhaps in, in, in the United States. So in a nutshell, uh, who's, who's on each side? Like when, when you talk about... Uh divided or if you divide things into two camps into anti and pro coalition as opposed to right and left in a nutshell who's on each side so on the one side you have the government which is benjamin netanyahu and his likud party which is the kind of classic right-wing party in israel and then everybody to his right so that's the ultra orthodox the most right-wing elements of the settler movement and the most right-wing elements of the kind of religious Zionist movement, so people who demand 
a more religious control over life, a more rapid colonization uh, of the West Bank, and even beyond. We saw his finance minister give a speech in Paris in which he stood in front of the old map of the hard right of the Zionist movement that also includes Jordan. So that's not the land right. The greater Israel map. Exactly. So that's one side. And on the other side, you have everybody else. And I think that's quite important is that it's everybody else. So really the kind of division is Netanyahu and his right-wing coalition versus everybody else. And what's striking is that that division is a division that is able to give Netanyahu and that right-wing coalition a majority in Israeli society. And that, I think, is a fundamental transformation for many Israelis of what the kind of political and social reality in the country is. And that's fueling, I think, a lot of a lot of the movement. The people who, until a decade ago, would have been part of all the big decision-making within the government and within the parliament and within the institutions in Israel are today forced to demonstrate and to occupy roads and to make demands from outside of the institutions. And I think that partly drives what's happening because that's kind of an unacceptable proposition, I think, for many of those people. Take us back uh, in time to the era of uh, the kibbutzim and Mm. the the founding of the labor movement. Uh, Those movements are referenced as umbrellas for human rights, solidarity of cause. Yet, uh, what role did Palestinians have in these? Uh, so the short answer is none. And the longer answer is that those organizations really were formed against the Palestinians. And I think that's sort of what I was saying before, is that to talk about the Zionist left or the, the labor Zionist movement, which ruled both the Yishuv, so the, the pre-state community in Palestine, and then the Israeli state in an uninterrupted fashion from the 1920s to the late 1970s. So that's a very long time. They built the state. They built the army, they built uh, its financial system, its unions, its farms, its industry, etc. That movement was specific in the way that from the beginning of the 20th century, it's a movement that fights for the exclusion of Palestinians. So whereas employers or the kind of the traditional right uh, in the Zionist movement wanted to keep Palestinians as part of the economy. Now, not because they were friendly to the Palestinians, but because they wanted to exploit Palestinian workers. They were cheaper. Uh, they could be treated less well than other Jewish workers, etc. People spoke about comparisons with Algeria. They said we, the, the state we will build it will be like colonial Algeria, where the, the Jewish minority will be landlords that will exploit the Palestinian majority. And the labor movement opposed that and said, we need to build a state that excludes an economy and then a state that excludes Palestinians altogether. And they made that argument for two reasons. One, they said the only way in which we will build an effective state is by excluding the indigenous population from our economy. And they talked about South Africa. They said in South Africa, the economy is dependent on the work of Africans that rebel all the time, go on strike, can put pressure on the economy of the colonial state. We should avoid that at all costs in Israel, uh, in the future Israeli state, and also for strategic reasons, because they said the only way to attract new settlers is to give them a better life and so to pay them more uh, and better wages than the wages that are afforded to Palestinians. And so they fought for what was called the conquest of labor or the campaign for Hebrew labor, and it was a campaign to exclude Palestinians from the economy and then from the future state. And so what's extraordinary is that the so-called Israeli left are the people who fought to exclude Palestinians. They are the people who built the militias that were to form the backbone of the Israeli army and who caused the Nakba, so the expulsion of over 700,000 Palestinians and the destruction of over 500 villages and urban centers. They are the people who stopped refugees from returning in the first decades of the state. They are even the parties and the organizations that imposed military rule on the Palestinian citizens after independence from 1948 to 1966, in which Palestinians in Israel, despite being citizens, were not allowed to leave their their areas in which they were controlled by military rule. And so that's the kind of special permission, I guess, to travel. Yes, exactly. Just like in the West Bank now, you needed a special permission, and often that was a work permit that allowed you to leave the area in order to go and work in an Israeli firm and then return 
in the evening. So very similar to what was then imposed on the Palestinians in, in the West Bank in Gaza after 1967. Let's also clear up the nostalgia about Golda Meir as mm. uh, despicable as Smotrich and his abhorrent denial of the existence of Palestinians. She was very much in line with this rhetoric, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. That's what, sort of what's striking again is that despite all the sort of moral denunciations, and look, I think there's many reasons to morally denunciate uh, the current government or, or the previous ones uh, in Israel for their treatment of Palestinians amongst others. But so Smotrich said at this same conference in Paris, in which he, in France, in which he talked about, he denied the existence of the Palestinians. He said, there's no such thing as a Palestinian nation. There's no Palestinian language. You know, the kind of, that kind of language which of course is deeply shocking, it's racist, it, denial, it denies the existence of an entire people, a people that's being colonized, dispossessed, expelled, etc. He's certainly not the first person to do so. So as you point out, Golda Meir, who's often celebrated as being sort of the first, I mean, she is the, the, the first and, and only female prime minister of Israel. She was a stalwart of that labor Zionist movement. She was a, a key figure in the Histadot, in the Israeli trade union. She then was a key well, she was also a key figure in the Labour Party and then became the Prime Minister. And she famously gave an interview in 1969 to the New York Times, if I'm not mistaken, uh, in which she said the same thing. She said, there is no such thing as Palestinians. There were no Palestinians when the Zionist movement arrived in Palestine. And I, I don't remember word for word, but she says something like, uh, it's not like there was a people there that we kicked out in order to build our state. Now, that's, of course, exactly what happened. And there was a people there uh, that, and they were kicked out. Isn't it ironic that both Smotrich and Golda Meir, I think Golda Meir was born in Kiev, Ukraine, and Smotrich family comes from the town of Smotrich in, in Ukraine. Right, exactly. And, and, you know, but I think this is a, a kind of a reality even beyond both of them of the Zionist movement altogether. We all know the kind of original slogan of the Zionist movement, which was to say that Palestine was a land without a people for a people without a land. And of course, it was never a land without a people. There's this famous letter that is written to the Zionist organization where envoys of the Zionist organization tell them at the very, very, it's either the very end of the 19th century or the beginning of the 20th. They say, we've seen the bride, she's beautiful, but she's already married to another man, right? And it's, it's the, so they was to say Palestine is beautiful, but there's, of course, already a people there. There is a whole civilization. There's an economy. There's a society. There's a, a, a growing and emerging national movement opposed to the Ottomans, etc. And the very foundations of Zionism were to deny that reality, uh, to deny Palestinian peoplehood, to this, de deny the fact that Palestinians, the indigenous population, had a claim on the land. And so Smotrich actually, despite the fact that he's a particularly virulent and, and kind of violent figure stands in a very long Zionist tradition and is innovating nothing here when he makes that kind of when he makes that kind of statement. So now we have these figures coming out and fighting for what is their uh, just cause, who have also done horrific things to Palestinians. For example, Benny Gantz. Talk about him. Yeah. So Benny Gantz, as, as I said before, was the chief of staff of the, the Israeli army and led the famously amongst a, a, a larger kind of CV, uh, the attack on Gaza in 2014, which is today the most bloody assault on Gaza that included both airstrikes and land strikes, killed over 2,000 people, large amounts of children were murdered in that process also. I mean, not that uh, killing adults is somehow, you know, not a problem. Tens of thousands of people were wounded, displaced, uh, entire neighborhoods were, were raised to the ground. And two things I think I would say about Gantz is that not only did Gantz mobilize that kind of track record as an object of pride uh, in order to then stand in the Israeli election, but he also mobilizes it now in this movement. So he says in order to defend the high court, he, he told demonstrators in February, he said, the court always defended me. It protected me. Uh, and now we must protect it. I, I'm not quoting exactly, but it's in the article if people want to read it. But I think that's telling about the relationship to the high court that many of these people have, which is to say that the high court is not this liberal dream that the Israeli right is making it to be. It is an organization that has put limits. It's true. 
on some elements of Israeli expansionism, but has legalized many more of them, including settlements that are not recognized by anybody else but Israel, for example. And so when Gantz says the high court has protected me, it's of course true. The high court has given an amount of kind of legal veneer, uh, a, 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 a veneer of legal justification to some of the most kind of murderous acts of the Israeli army, but also of kind of Israeli colonization of Palestine in general. And, and I think that's important to capture because there are things I think that this coalition is doing that are, of course, dangerous, deeply conservative, will t- target women, LGBT communities, trade unions, the right to strike, all of that, I think is undeniable. The question is, is that enough to talk about a sort of a, a pre and post reform as this pre kind of liberal democratic life where things were legal and orderly and, and happened well? Well, and the kind of dangerous chaos on the other side. Well, I mean, this was my second question. I mean, if anything, uh, the the Palestinians have been victims of the status quo. Was I mean, this is what the Israelis are trying to protect the ju- judicial system. But was the current judicial system ever on the side of the Palestinians? No, of course not. And I think that's very striking. So even in the Israeli press, you have these articles that say, well, Palestinian citizens aren't participating in the movement. Organizers of the movement have said in interviews, we try very hard. You know, we, we, we call on, on Palestinian citizens to come to the demonstrations. We reach out to them, etc. But the reality is that Palestinians are being asked to defend the system, which has not only not defended them, but which has legalized, normalized, and institutionalized their dispossession. It has, uh, I've already said, put limits on it, but it has certainly not stopped it. Uh, And it, for example, most strikingly, when the nation-state law was passed, which is undeniably a further assault on Palestinians, including Palestinian citizens of the state, uh, which enshrined in the closest thing that Israel has to a constitution, the fact that uh, it is a Jewish state, that its national language is Hebrew only, that a settlement in the West Bank is a national priority or a national value. I, I can't remember the exact phrasing, but so that, that settlement is a national aim. Lots of things that were already a reality, but that were being inscribed in law at that moment. The high court said that it was a, a perfectly uh, constitutionally fine thing to do. To then ask Palestinians to come and defend the system that was already oppressing and attacking them, I think is unrealistic, but is also insulting in a way. And I think that's really how Palestinians overwhelmingly have responded to it. And even those who have tried, so for example, members of the Communist Party who are sort of ideologically attached to an idea that it would be possible to build these solidarities, I think often in the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary, they continue to try. When they have tried to participate in the demonstrations, they have found themselves attacked by demonstrators. People with Palestinian flags are, are attacked. Palestinian flags are, are, are pulled off. People are being told to leave demonstrations. When they try to speak, their speeches are being checked and uh, censured in order for them not to talk about colonization, about occupation, about discrimination against Palestinians. And so even in the movement, the very thing that critics are saying well, what are we actually supposed to be defending? Why should we defend the colonial state that oppresses us? Even when people participate in the movement, the movement reproduces that kind of exclusion and and repression. And so I think it's not only not surprising, but quite right, I think, that that Palestinian citizens certainly don't identify uh, with the movement. I mean, one can see why Palestinians would not want to be part of of the movement so the cool. so 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 the question is democracy for who? Um, explain what is really at stake here. So I think the question is really about who controls the Israeli state, and so is it a sort of a broad political spectrum uh, that today calls itself the sort of liberal camp or the the anti Netanyahu camp that represents the old kind of liberal Zionist elite, people that have controlled the institutions and and main political parties for most of Israeli history, and in fact. The question of the high court is interesting here because there, there are real questions, I think, to be asked about how the high court is, is appointed now. So what the Israeli right says, it's done in undemocratic ways. 
it's not that I think their solution to it is particularly good. They certainly do have a point. It's effectively a committee, uh, a court that appoints itself, that uh, controls its self-reproduction alongside a number of uh, a majority of unelected state officials. And that, I think, captures the kind of old elite that run the Israeli state for a very long time and that was very comfortable with reproducing itself through these different these different things. And against that, there is a, 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 a hard right coalition that has been growing in different ways and taking increasingly control of the state since the late 1970s, early 1980s with ups and downs. And Netanyahu is probably the most kind of successful figure in that movement. And so they're trying to change the institutions so that they play in their favor. But so what's happening is really that there is a struggle between two blocks within the kind of Zionist mainstream about who is going to control the state and how. But that is, of course, a struggle about who is going to control the state that is democratic only, I think, in form. So sure, there are elections on a regular basis, there are institutions, there are checks and balances, but only for a particular part of the population. Apartheid South Africa was perfectly democratic for white South Africa. They voted, they had political parties, coalitions changed, etc. It would have been ludicrous to pretend that that was a liberal democratic state. Israel is not exactly the same as South Africa, but the reality remains the same thing. It calls itself a Jewish and democratic state, i.e. a state that is democratic for its Jewish citizens. Not only are the majority of Palestinians that live under Israeli rule that have absolutely no other choice but to live by the decisions made by the government. Absolutely no say in the election of that government. They can't vote. They can't be represented. They can't participate. Even Palestinian citizens of the state find themselves continuously targeted in ways that are certainly less than democratic. There are more than 65 laws in Israel that target particularly Palestinians as Palestinians, directly and indirectly. There are regular assaults on political Palestinians' political parties trying to limit their ability to stand in elections, and they are made to operate in a state that very clearly states that it is a state that is not for them. So in no real sense, I think, are we talking about the defense of a democratic system? We are talking about who is going to rule an Israeli state that has been described across the board now as an apartheid state and a state that treats its citizens differently based on whether they are Jewish or not and extends rights differently on that basis. And so it's not really a struggle over democracy. It's a struggle over which wing of the Zionist movement is going to control that state. That's not something I think that Palestinians necessarily have um, a side on, let's say, in that struggle, right? Choosing your oppressor is never a particularly exciting uh, political choice, I think. When, when we talk about, uh, well, actually, Israel has created a multi-tier Palestinian mm. population under its control. I mean, when, uh, when you count the entire population that's under the control of Israel, and including all the occupied territories, even Gaza, because everything is controlled in and out of Gaza through Israel, uh, Palestinians now, according to, to latest uh, polls, etc., are either in par with the Israeli population, the Jewish-Israeli population, or are now the majority. They don't have equal rights, and every aspect of their lives is controlled by the Jewish uh, population, but yet this is not addressed. I mean, everybody knows that Israel controls the West Bank, controls everything about Gaza, but then when they talk about democracy, they talk about just like what's happening in what is called Israel uh, uh, proper, right? Mm -hmm. So why do they have this distortion? I mean, here you have Smotrich going to France, showing even a bigger map than right. Israel is, but yet they somehow try to wash their hands off the population in, for example, the West Bank. You know, mm -hmm. the Palestinians in the West Bank uh, are not included in this so-called democratic movement. Why is this the case? Well, so I, I think there is a sort of a helpful myth in Israeli political life, which is to say on the one hand, there's what happens in Israel proper. And on the other hand, there's what happens in the occupied territories. Now, the occupied territories have been occupied since 1967. It's the longest running occupation in the world. And as you uh, very rightly point out, 
all the major decisions inside of those occupied territories are made by the Israeli government. The Palestinians are absolutely dependent on the decisions of that government. In fact, another change that the Netanyahu government has made is that Smotrich is now in charge of the occupied territories, which previously was under military uh, uh, military officials were in charge of, of the kind of immediate rule. And now it's a, it's a civilian politician. So it's a further move into what effectively has been an annexation of the entirety of historic Palestine since 1967 in, in everything but name. That's the, the reality. And so there is a rhetorical kind of myth, which is to say that there is this well-functioning democracy on one side of the green line. And then there's this question of the occupation on the other hand. The reality is that that's one state. It is it is one legal reality, which is organized, divided, etc. In, in different in different ways, but which are all under the direct rule of the Israeli state and therefore the Israeli government. And so a situation like that in which only a minority of people vote to decide for the future of all is undeniably an undemocratic, an undemocratic reality. And by the way, we could also point even further. It is also the Israeli government that refuses the right of return of Palestinian refugees and does so against all international rights. So the Palestinian government even decides the future of the refugees also. Um, it's a, all of this is a deeply anti-democratic reality. I think it's very difficult to argue that a democracy would simply mean one person, one vote. That's the basic democratic principle. The reality is that if that's the case, the political reality between the Jordan uh, and the and the Mediterranean would change fundamentally because people would vote uh, to have access to land, to jobs, to uh, state investments. They would vote to end uh, differential rights being applied on the basis of whether people are Jewish or not. Um, they would vote to end communities in which you can only enter uh, if you have a, 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 a particular background or, or another. They would certainly vote to end the military rule uh, over both Gaza and the West Bank, etc., etc., etc. They might even vote for the return of refugees, right? So the, the reality is that a democratic reality would fundamentally transform the reality inside of what is already one state. And that's, of course, what the Palestinian national movement has been fighting for for over 75 years now um, is, is exactly that that reality of being able to build a, a democratic state. So the democratic apartheid state of Israel, does that capture it? Perhaps something like that. Or, you know, maybe you might want to call it an Athenian democracy, right? Where you had a small amount of citizens who had a democratic life and ruled over a vast majority of disenfranchised uh, uh, peasants and slaves, right? So, I mean, sure, the Greeks could call that a democracy. In the 21st century, that's certainly not something that anybody would consider a democracy. A, a population, uh, a, a minority part of the population that gets to choose the future and the material reality for the majority, I just think cannot be helpfully understood uh, as democratic in, 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 in any way that we would generally recognize today. And so, sure, we could call it democratic apartheid, perhaps. That might capture the contradiction. So you have your finger on the pulse of uh, the Netherlands and, and certainly what's happening in, in, in European countries, the EU, for example. Uh, we talked about apartheid, uh, Amnesty International labeled Israel as an apartheid state, hu state Human Rights Watch, Israel its own human rights organization, Beth Salem, and, and others, and the U United Nations rapporteur. Th wh why there is that uh, uh, hesitance or resistance in acknowledging this in, in, in Europe by governments as they did during, uh, you know, apartheid South Africa? So, of course, the comparison is also helpful because the governments of Europe or of North America only recognized that reality in South Africa when they were forced to it. And they were forced to it on the one hand by very large solidarity movements in those countries themselves. And perhaps most importantly, they were forced to it by uh, the South African revolution. Black South Africans fought back, stri uh, organized strikes, demonstrated, etc., and made apartheid. Uh, uh, they, they, they stopped it from functioning, uh, its economy. And that forced 
the governments in the global north to to act in order to try to save their economic and political interest in, in southern Africa. I think the same is true in Palestine, is that governments in North America and in Europe or in other places will not be convinced by good arguments of uh, the reality uh, of, of calling Israel an apartheid state and imposing the appropriate sanctions. I think nobody that spends a little bit of time on the subject can really deny the reality of uh, 75 years of oppression, exclusion, dispossession, expulsion, uh, murder, etc., 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 that's been and continues to be carried out against Palestinians. The reality is that Israel is a key ally. It's a key political ally, it's a military ally, it's an economic partner, um, and it's considered as important to the interests of Europe and North America in the Middle East. And as long as they're not forced to, by the transformation of political realities in the Middle East, uh, in Palestine and the Middle East in general, and by the pressure of, of civil society in the West, they will not change their mind, just as they didn't uh, in South Africa. Unfortunately, our governments are not led by either empathy or morals. They are led by their own interests, economic and, and strategic interests. And that can only be transformed by mass sustained uh, social struggle both in the region and and in the global and in the global north and that's why the you know Palestine, Palestinian solidarity movement mobilizes uh, demands the imposition of boycotts disinvestment and sanction in uh, universities neighborhoods economies by their governments uh, and and that's very much something that people should should continue to do because it's not a social movement in Israel that is going to improve uh, the lives of Palestinians. It will be on the one hand the struggle of Palestinians themselves, um, their relations with uh, other social movements in the rest of the Middle East, and their alliance with the Solidarity Movement. And so everybody very much needs to do their their part in kind of moving that forward. I think. Dr. Sai Englert, thank you for coming on Arab Talk. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, a real honor to be here. Well, that's the voice and the face of Dr. Sai Englert. He's a lecturer in political economy of the Middle East at uh, Leiden University in the Netherlands. Well, I mean, why can't we get that kind of analysis in the mainstream media or anywhere in the media here in the United States or other parts, Jamal? I mean, it's, an, it's a really concise, well-thought-out kind of analysis how this is not uh, a march for democracy in the apartheid state, but it's a it's an attempt to hold on to liberal Zionism and uh, keep the status quo of the occupation of historic Palestine in place. Very excellent analysis. You're absolutely right, Jess. And, and what he explains, it's really a battle between two factions of Zionists. And he goes back during my conversation with him all the way back to the kibbutzim era, you know, and right. this whole idea uh, of establishing labor uh, move the labor movement in Israel and kibbutzes and so forth, but the whole intent from the beginning of the movement is to exclude the indigenous Palestinian population, and 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 yeah, maybe there is a sort of a democracy for uh, Jewish Israelis, but certainly not for uh, Palestinians and. Uh, and everyone else who is not Jewish on the land. And that's why we'll talk later on about the New York Times, uh, uh, talking about this, uh, you know, democracy right, war right. You know, for, and in Israel when it, it, it never uh, existed. existed. But first, first just uh, let's talk about... Your uh, your favorite minister, Ben Gavir. I mean, yes, it's, it's an yes. incredible story, Jamal. I mean, can you believe there's going to be a National Guard basically... And a militia not controlled by the Israeli military. I which call is, it the I call it a private army. Not it is a, a private. It, it is a private army, and Ben Gavir is going to use it to crack down in quotes, which is basically terrorize, maim, and kill Palestinian civilians in the West Bank. This is basically a private militia for the illegal uh, colonial settlements in the West Bank, isn't it, Jamal? It is. This is. It's not. It's not that it's absent. You know, think about it this way. Palestinians who live in the West Bank, they're under, under Israeli military rule. 
talking anyways, about the, anyways. I'm talking about the Israeli military. And then they have the border patrol, which is part of the military, but they call it uh, the border police. Those are the Green Beret uh, human, uh, you know, checkpoints and so on. Then you have the Israeli police uh, falling under, under the, whether it is the jurisdiction of Jerusalem or other areas. Uh, and then you have the settlers who are armed and, and most of them have served in the military and the ones who are in the ranks of officers, etc. they get to keep their weapons with them. And on top of this, you add now a 2,000 strong militia or private army with this under this Kahanist racist uh, terrorist. This is a definition in the Israeli media. He's a Kahanist. Right. He's a he's a terrorist. And now he controls two thousand men, basically that I assume uh, under his own selection. You know the same ideology to crack down on, on, on Palestinians. And also even the Israelis are complaining about this because they think he'll use that also to crack down on the, on the, the anti-government demonstrators. But uh, I, I don't think they'll be more inclined to shoot but, Israeli demonstrators versus, right. versus shoot and kill Palestinians, for example. So, so, so a couple of things with this development, Jamal. Number one is that you know, it's 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 more of the evolution of Netanyahu's kind of opening the door to the reality of the apartheid state as a as a racist apartheid state. So this is even more evidence. Not that we need more evidence, but this is an extreme development. And the second thing is, you know, I I wonder if you've heard anything from Antony Blinken or President Biden about the development of of this uh, private militia for 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 this white supremacist. I don't I don't believe it's being covered. No, no, I, I think the administration is still scratching. Uh, people there are scratching their heads. To tell to tell you the truth, uh, they don't know what to do. Uh, all that they are worried about is well, getting embarrassed. You know by the, the that, action. They, they want to keep the status quo. Basically, my analysis is that they want things to be quiet until after the 2024 election, Jamal. That that's really and you know just to kind of put a slight spin on this as from a political standpoint, you have Ron DeSantis going to meet with Benjamin Netanyahu this week as part of his bona fides uh, to show his fidelity to to the apartheid state. So it's kind of interesting. You know, with these developments and with our guest today, I mean, the United States is just and its foreign policy is really catastrophic right now when it comes to what's happening right now. Well, you mentioned Ron DeSantis, and I have to mention also Nikki Haley, who right. recently used that in her campaign that the Democrats are hurting Israel. They should everybody <laughs> should band together well, and support Israel. Well, and Chuck Schumer, Chuck Schumer didn't seem to abandon them. No, but you know, just that, just that soft criticism, the fact that right. there was some soft criticism, I, and and you'll see this in the elections. That that's going to be one of the key uh, campaign slogans for the Republicans to distinguish right. themselves from the Biden administration, which we know that it has done nothing, but nevertheless, they're going to say, we have to support Israel. We have to support our friend in the Middle East, our only friend, Benjamin Netanyahu. You know, and and uh, I want to go back to another point that when we were talking about Ben Gavir and his uh, private army, um, I've been talking to a lot of actually well, next week's guest who who's an israeli anti-zionist israeli and he himself was surprised by this move by benjamin netanyahu because he said now ben gavir is becoming more powerful than benjamin netanyahu and historically benjamin netanyahu never liked anyone to become more powerful in fact when they started to their their star to rise. Let's let's put it this way. He went out of his way to destroy them. So that's right. that's kind of the the uh, bewildering, I would say, uh, action well, by him. That yes, he wants the Kahanists and settlers to vote for him, and he wants to show them love. Right. You know, but at the same time, 
is going out of his way to buttress and 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 increase the popularity of uh, someone uh, who's a terrorist, really, but uh, well, he's two uh, adored yeah. by the Kahanists. Two things, Jamal. He needs Ben Gavir to stay in power, of course. And second, I think he's probably grooming Ben Gavir to to be the next prime minister eventually, uh, depending on what happens with uh, Netanyahu, because we're coming to a crisis point. I mean, there's been a temporary uh, putting on hold, although that's not true. But this is the this is you know how it's being packaged for the Hasbara for the rest of the world. The judicial reforms have been put on hold. Everything that you've read, everything that I've read, everything that we're hearing from people on the ground there say that this is a scam and Netanyahu is going to go full steam ahead with these judicial uh, kind of, uh, we they're called reforms, but a gutting of the judicial system uh, in the apartheid state. So I think everybody, including Antony Blinken and Joe Biden and Ron DeSantis and the Republicans and the Democrats, Better get their seatbelts on because things are going to get much worse real soon. Moving on to our next story. Do we have uh, to, Jamal? Do we have yeah. to talk about this again and again? Well, I'm, and I'm, again? I'm, I'm only, I've selected only actually one article, but the, the New York Times editorial, I mean, this is, I, I'm targeting this article because it's an editorial, it's not right. uh, an right. op ed. Right. So the New York Times editorial basically entitled, the fight for Israel's democracy continues. It's I so mean, bogus. I mean, it's, it starts it's with that insulting. headline. It's insulting. Telling you that Israel, reaffirming that Israel is a democracy, ignoring everything else, ignoring Human Rights Watch, and ignoring B'Tselem, ignoring all the uh, human rights organizations who uh, that labeled Israel as, as an apartheid. And, uh, you know, they go on, Netanyahu shouldn't be doing this, he should be doing that, you know, to preserve the democracy, etc. I mean, the, the same rhetoric that you see it on CNN. But how Fox is this News. not, has, isn't this Hasbara in a way? Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, yeah, exactly. They're doing the Israeli propaganda for them, the Hasbara. But, and then they go on to talk about the two-state solution and the Abraham Accords. <laughs> I mean, the, the, like I, I, I feel they are in la la land in a way to to talk about things that have never basically worked and has have nothing to do with the so-called democracy. When they you have uh, Smotrich and his group uh, denying the existence of uh, Palestinians. Uh, removing removing oh, the the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock from the picture and just showing the the wailing wall uh, when uh, they they are this uh, Smotrich displays a, a map that includes historic Palestine uh, plus Jordan and parts of Syria and Lebanon as part of the greater Israel and they the killing, yeah, and they the apartheid, and they talk about democracy, and 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 if they can work it out somehow, and talking about these two Zionist groups, the liberal Zionist and the not so liberal Zionist or the conservative uh, Zionist, and if they uh, just you know go back to the negotiation table and and uh, and protect the Abraham Accords, everything will be hunky dory. Yeah, well. My, I've I've said this to you, and I say this with a heavy heart, Jamal, because I know it's going to cause, you know, two more Palestinians were killed today. Uh, so what I'm going to say, I say with a heavy heart, because I know what I'm going to say is going to lead to more bloodshed, more land confiscation, and more killings. But there's a part of me that wants Netanyahu to make these changes because. I want the curtain to be pulled back even more for the rest of the world to see the apartheid, racist, and oppressive nature of the apartheid state. I want the world to see it. I kind of want it to be shoved in Biden's face, in the Republicans' face, and in the EU's face, all the people who continue to ignore all the red warning signs and flashing red lights that are that are going on for the last 75 years that have, you know, uh, 
you know, basically led to the, the, the kind of ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. So there's a part of me that wants this to go forward because otherwise, if Netanyahu makes these changes, you, you and I know what's going to happen if he doesn't make these changes. Everybody's going to have a sigh of relief. The next headline is going to be, oh, thank goodness, Israeli democracy survives. And I think that would be politically catastrophic. I mean, they're already saying that. They're saying the fact that uh, thousands of people are demonstrating, it, it means that Israel has a healthy and vibrant democracy It's so going delusional. On. It's so and, delusional. And they are so delusional because they're <clears throat> ignoring the big elephant in the room which is basically half the population, 50% of the population. More than if we 50%. talk about yeah. the land between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, that the Palestinians don't count in the, in the so-called uh, march to, democ- to well, democracy they don't even... or the fight of, for Israel's democracy, as the New York Times And, and for Smotrich, they don't even exist. So go figure, right? Half the That's population right. doesn't exist. And I want to end also by talking a little bit for a few minutes to talk about is the action by the shameful, I would say, action by the United Arab Emirates uh, during this whole, uh, I would say, thing that's happening and the killing you mentioned about the killing Palestinians, which recently, by the way, Israel murdered a Palestinian doctor. Uh, They've killed him there and now they're trying to say he tried to reach to, uh, for the gun uh, yeah, right. of the person that killed him and so forth. But uh, and then all of a sudden now they don't have cameras to show what happened, even though the old city is basically littered by cameras on, in every corner. So now they said, no, they don't have anything to show for it. But anyway, the United Arab Emirates, they signed a new trade agreement that they've celebrated on the media. The United Arab Emirates, they've hosted an iftar dinner with the, with the Israeli counterparts. And they're uh, talking about people who bury their heads in the sand. And, and, and literally and figuratively, they are burying their heads in the Arabian sand and pretending that nothing is happening and the Palestinians are not suffering and, and they can continue to conduct business as usual. Well... Uh, on that sad note, you know, I just have one word for the UAE. It's called karma. You're doing this now. Let's see what happens. And you're doing it in the middle of Ramadan, which is like, uh, you know, kind of head scratching beyond belief. But this, these stories, Jamal, will continue to fo- uh, follow here on Arab Talk. There, there's something that's going to happen that's really big. We know that something is going to happen really big in the next two weeks on the ground uh, in historic Palestine, and uh, we're going to continue to follow it. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download the latest shows, and we'll speak to you next week. See you next week. Mm